0: Hi guys this is Shivaraman again from Johns Hopkins University. Now why don't we continue our survey of acute vascular causes of small bowel inflammation and talk a little bit about acute gastrointestinal bleeding. Now we talked about this during my last series of lectures but I want to kind of stress the point because I think this is a really growing indication for CT. Now GI bleeding accounts Small bowel bleeding accounts for about 3-5% to of all GI bleeds, and unfortunately, the vast majority of these cases ultimately go undiagnosed. And there are, of course, a number of different causes of small bowel bleeding. Ulcerations, Crohn's disease, angiodysplasia, vascular malformations, and unfortunately, these bleeds are very difficult to diagnose, right? Capsule endoscopy and push enteroscopy, as I talked about earlier, are both pretty limited in terms of their evaluation. Now, unfortunately, all of the different options in terms of radiologic or imaging modalities are relatively limited. Tagged red blood cell scans are relatively sensitive and can detect bleeding rates down to about 0.1 or 0.2 cc's per minute. But as you all know, these studies lack spatial resolution. And in many cases, it's hard to localize the site of bleeding. I can tell you there is a bleed, but I may not be able to tell you where the bleeding is coming from. And just as importantly, it gives you very little additional information. It may or may not tell you there is a bleed, But if there is a bleed, it's not going to tell you why. It can't tell you that there is an ulcer. It can't tell you there's a mass. It can't tell you that there is an AVM or angiodysplasia. Now, angiography, on the other hand, is relatively insensitive. It can only detect rapid sites of bleeding, typically about one cc per minute. And unfortunately, it's not a great diagnostic modality when you're doing non-specific or non-selective injections of the SMA. It's an invasive modality, it carries the risks of interventions, and all of us who have done radiology training have seen complications, right? Retroperitoneal hematomas, groin hematomas, vascular dissections, and on top of that, it has relatively poor contrast resolution. So if you don't know where the bleed is to start with, it's going to be really hard to pick it up. I will say, on the other hand, it's a great modality in terms of actually treating a bleed. It's at least as good as colonoscopy, if not better, for treating bleeds, but it's not a great diagnostic modality. So putting all that together, I would argue that CT angiography really is the best modality that we have available to us. It's relatively sensitive. It can detect bleeding rates at about 0.35 cc per minute, which is better than angio and not that much worse than a tagged RBC scan. And I would argue that it's probably better than even capsule endoscopy. Now, the key to getting these studies right is to image the patient when they're maximally bleeding. Now, as I talked about in my last series of lectures, you want to avoid either positive oral contrast or neutral contrast agents. Positive agents are going to obscure any sites of active extravasation and make your studies relatively uninterpretable, and neutral agents, while not completely obscuring bleeds, may actually dilute them out, and so they may make it less conspicuous and harder to pick up. You want to give a brisk injection of IV contrast, at least 4 to 6 cc's per second, and you want to acquire at least two different phases. Having those two phases, which at our institution are arterial and venous phase imaging, allows you to differentiate an actual bleed, which is going to change in size and morphology, from just intrinsic high-density material within the bowel, whether it's barium, a suture line, or maybe malox or some kind of medication. You don't need to get non-contrast images, but that does make it easier. Having the non-contrast images allows you to constantly cross-reference back and forth and see whether what you're looking at is actually a bleed or just something high-density in the bowel. Here's a good example. This patient has an active duodenal bleed, and you can see that there's a lot of high-density hematoma surrounding the active extravasation. Here's another example. Again, active extravasation in the small bowel, it's changing in both size and morphology between the arterial and the venous phase images. These are not easy to pick up if you don't have the clinical history. I've got to admit, with the clinical history, at least you take the time to look at the entirety of the small bowel, but I've seen plenty of these cases where these are incidental findings, incidental GI bleeds, and they tend to get missed. Here's another example. Again, active extravasation, it's increasing in size and changing in morphology between the arterial and the venous phase images. These can be very subtle diagnoses, and in many cases, utilizing reconstructions and MIP imaging can be very helpful in terms of helping yourself make these subtle diagnoses. Now, the next major Diagnosis in this category is va- small bowel vasculitis. Now, this is a rare diagnosis, and I would argue that even at Hopkins, where I see a lot of strange stuff on a nearly daily basis, I don't see more than just a few cases of vasculitis every year, if that. I've probably seen less than 10 cases in my entire career at Johns Hopkins. Now, as all of you know, vasculitis can be broadly broken up into three different forms. There's large vessel vasculitis, which primarily affect the aorta, great vessels, things like takiasus and giant cell. There's medium vessel vasculitis, which will affect the major visceral and mesenteric vessels, things like PAN, Kawasaki's, primary granulomatous central nervous system angiitis, and then small vessel vasculitis, which affect that end capillary or small arterial level, lupus, henoch schonlein purpura, Wegner's, Behçet's disease. Now, vasculitis is a relatively non-specific imaging diagnosis, and you really have to put together the imaging features along with the patient's presentation and their demographics. In many cases, vasculitis is going to look a lot like bowel ischemia, just in a very odd age group. You're going to see submucosal edema, severe, intense mucosal hyperenhancement. You may see submucosal hypodensity or hyperdensity as a result of either submucosal edema or submucosal hemorrhage or intramural hemorrhage. You have to look at the mesenteric vasculature, renal and hepatic vasculature as well for evidence of aneurysms or pseudoaneurysms. But putting all that together, I will tell you, In most cases, you're just going to see horrible looking bowel and what allows you to raise the possibility of vasculitis is that you see something that looks like ischemia, but it's a relatively young person who shouldn't be at risk for ischemia otherwise. And seeing the vascular abnormalities, whether it's aneurysms or beating and irregularity and narrowing of the vasculature, helps you make the diagnosis with more specificity. So here's an example of a patient who has lupus vasculitis. So this is a small vessel vasculitis. The vessels themselves look relatively normal, but this is a young person, the bowel looks horrible, mucosal hyperemia, submucosal edema. The differential obviously includes small bowel infections, common things being common, but given the patient's age, given the severity of their presentation, and given the horrible nature of the bowel on CT, including the large amount of ascites, you wanna mention vasculitis in your differential. Here's another case, again, lupus vasculitis. And notice how this could very easily be bowel ischemia if you were talking about a 60 or 65-year-old. But this is a 20-year-old, and the bowel looks profoundly hyperemic, severe submucosal edema, and lots of ascites. So again, it's very much the same differential diagnosis, but you have to mention vasculitis given the patient's age and the fact that they have no major risk factors for ischemia. Here's an even younger patient. This is a patient who's about 10 years old, and notice again, very thickened, very hyperemic, very inflamed looking bowel. Could be any one of a number of disorders, but given the patient's age, you have to consider the possibility of vasculitis in any case where the imaging features suggest ischemia. Now, sometimes if you're lucky, you're gonna see vascular abnormalities that help you make the diagnosis with more specificity. Here's a patient who has polyarteritis nodosa, and in fact, the bowel looked pretty normal in this case. But notice how there's thickening, irregularity, and this kind of ulceration along the course of the SMA. Now, could that be atherosclerotic disease? And the answer is yes, but this is actually a pretty young person. They're about 18 years old. Why would they have atherosclerosis? This isn't atherosclerosis at all. This is actually inflammatory wall thickening in a patient who has inflammatory vascular wall thickening secondary to polyarteritis nodosa. Here's another patient where, again, the vascular abnormalities help you make the correct diagnosis. This is a these are MIP reconstructions off the arterial phase and notice how the hepatic artery and the celiac look beaded irregular there's alternating areas of narrowing and dilatation and this turned out to be Takayasu's Takayasu's more commonly will involve the aorta but can involve the medium-sized vessels as well. And in some cases, CT may not be sensitive enough, although I will argue today's modern generation CT scanners with multiplanar reformats and 3D imaging are much more apt to catch subtle vascular abnormalities than we were maybe a generation ago, but there are gonna be cases where CT is not gonna be sensitive enough and you're gonna need to make the diagnosis on an angiogram. Here's a patient who has multiple small aneurysms throughout the entirety of the SMA distribution, and they have polyarteritis nodosa. Now, notice that I've put some arrows adjacent to the largest aneurysms, but if you look out at the SMA arcade, those little tiny branches going out to the distal um, part, of, uh, going out to the bowel, you can see that there are actually innumerable tiny aneurysms everywhere. Classic polyarteritis nodosa. Now, our next entity in this category is mesenteric arterial dissection, and I want to talk about this entity because it's something that I think people are always a little perplexed by. How do I manage it? What do I do with this? Do I need to get follow-up? Do I need to call the physician? Is this someone who needs to go straight to angio? So let's talk a little bit about making the diagnosis and then how exactly to go about managing these abnormalities. Now the vast majority of dissections in the mesenteric arteries, and again we're talking about the celiac, SMA or IMA, are usually gonna be extensions of an aortic dissection, and that's not a diagnostic dilemma, right? Big dissection flap in the thoracic or abdominal aorta, and we're gonna document whether or not it goes into different mesenteric arteries. But isolated involvement of the visceral arteries is much, much more rare. And in most cases, if you get an isolated visceral artery dissection, it tends to be in the SMA. But, of course, I've seen them in many different arteries. Celiac, common hepatic. Uh, You know, I've probably seen several of those examples over the last couple of years. If you get an isolated visceral artery dissection, it's very rare for it to be in some normal person. Usually, these patients have some intrinsic weakness of the vessel wall, either diagnosed or non-diagnosed. Cystic medial necrosis fibromuscular dysplasia, collagen vascular disease, segmental arterial medial lysis. Most of these you're not gonna be able to make the diagnosis on a CT scan, but I've seen a few cases where the patient had an SMA uh, dissection, and if you look carefully at the renal arteries, you see that characteristic beating suggestive of fibromuscular dysplasia. Now how exactly do you manage these? Now if you see an acute dissection, that's something that needs to be acutely dealt with. And in most cases, these patients are symptomatic, they've got abdominal pain, you're gonna see hematoma within the wall of the uh, involved vessel, and there's gonna be some surrounding fat stranding and edema, as in this case, where there's an acute celiac artery dissection. And if you see an acute dissection, that patient is at very high risk for developing complications, and it's not that uncommon that they'll actually go on to entirely thrombose the, the entirety of the vessel. And that's a problem, right? You thrombose out the SMV or thrombose the SMA, I mean, sorry, the thrombosis, the celiac, or the SMA, you run a significant risk of visceral ischemia. So these patients need to be referred to see a vascular surgeon or an interventional radiologist. You need to keep them in the hospital. Now, incidental dissections, on the other hand, are a completely different ballgame. And I see lots of these every year. And I think we miss lots of these every year because we're just not looking for them. As I mentioned earlier, they tend to be most common in the SMA and in most cases these patients are asymptomatic. If you see an incidental dissection in an asymptomatic patient, it's not flow limiting, and the vessel lumen is normal, then you can probably just be, if you can probably feel safe referring the patient for follow-up. So that patient needs to have the vessel followed followed up to make sure that it doesn't dilate out or become aneurysmal over time. On the other hand, if the vessel itself is actually aneurysmal because of the dissection, then you need to be a little more concerned. They probably need to see someone who's familiar with this entity, a vascular surgeon or an interventionalist, and probably the vessel needs to be followed more closely over time to make sure that that aneurysm doesn't become a major clinical problem. So if you see something like this, where there's a dissection, the patient's asymptomatic, but the vessel itself is relatively aneurysmal, you need to be a little more careful, and the patient needs to be managed a little more closely. So why don't we talk about, next, another entity in this category of vascular disorders that we tend not to think about as a vascular abnormality, but is fundamentally a problem of the vascular trend. That's traumatic shock bowel complex. Now, shock bowel is something that we read a lot about in textbooks, has classic pathognomonic findings, but to be honest, is not an entity that we see that often in daily practice. Now, these are patients in the setting usually of trauma, but can be in other Causes of hypotension as well, who develop diffuse, profound submucosal edema with intense mucosal hyperenhancement. These are some of the most striking looking small bowel cases you're ever going to see. And typically, they have other imaging findings that are suggestive of hypotension and shock that help support the diagnosis. Flattening of the IVC, a small aorta, peripancreatic free fluid that mimics pancreatitis, diffuse hypoenhancement of the spleen and liver, and often intense hyperenhancement of the adrenal glands. Here's a great case of shock bowel. This patient was in a trauma, they were hypotensive, and you can see that the entirety of the small bowel is profoundly thickened and hyperemic. Here's an even more striking example, diffusely thickened, hyperemic, inflamed bowel, there's diffuse hemoperitoneum. this patient had horrible trauma and you can actually see that there's ectopic gas surrounding the left kidney. Now the final entity in this category of vascular disorders is gonna be radiation enteritis. Now radiation enteritis is really primarily a diagnosis that's gonna be based on two things. One, the distribution of involved bowel and two, the patient's clinical history. Now, radiation enteritis is going to give you submucosal edema with mucosal hyperenhancement traditionally in the radiation port. Now, most often I'm seeing it in my practice in patients who get radiation for endometrial or cervical cancer or rarely patients who get brachytherapy beads for prostate cancer. And unfortunately, sometimes you have trouble finding a clinical history that's helpful but look for signs of prior surgery or treatment to help you make the diagnosis. Now, in the acute setting, Right after the radiation therapy is subsided, you're going to see hyperemia and submucosal edema. But over time, a lot of that acute inflammation is going to subside. And you may see thickened bowel, but that mucosal hyperemia may largely subside. Now, typically, it's going to be within the radiation port, which means it's going to be down in the pelvis. And the small bowel immediately above the radiation field is going to look completely normal. So you're almost going to see a straight line demarcating normal and abnormal bowel. Because it tends to involve the pelvis, the rectum and the bladder are very often involved and you're gonna see bladder wall thickening and rectal thickening, so radiation proctocolitis and radiation cystitis. Here's an example of a patient who had radiation treatment for cervical cancer and you can see that the entirety of the small bowel down in the pelvis is thickened, it's mildly hyperenhancing, but I haven't shown you but the bowel superior to this was completely normal. Classic distribution, classic appearance for radiation enteritis. Here's another example again. Market thickening of the small bowel in the pelvis. Notice how there's additional thickening of the rectum and the uh, bladder. So, this is radiation cystitis and radiation proctocolitis. Now, this is fundamentally a vascular disorder. You may ask me, well, wh- what does this have to do with the other vascular disorders we've discussed? This is a vascular disorder. It's really a radiation induced vasculitis that's affecting the small bowel in these locations. So why don't we end there, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about CT and the diagnosis of small bowel inflammatory bowel disease, namely Crohn's disease. So until next time, this is Raman from John's Hopkins. Bye.